wasn't my first time in the Middle East, so I didn't expect to get off the plane and see cartoon versions of sand dunes all around me. But arriving in Doha was surprising for how bright and shiny the city is, how clean and orderly and fresh. And at the same time, it is a massive construction zone. <laughs> yeah, it is a massive construction zone because they have a lot to prepare in anticipation of the FIFA World Cup for 2022. And that made for a perfect backdrop for why we were there, Tim. This is a very clean and sparkly city combined with dozens of stick cranes and construction sites was sort of a metaphor for the regional behavioral science conference, BX Arabia. The experts we talked to at BX Arabia sort of said, hey, we've got some really cool stuff here, but it's not done. Yeah. BX Arabia is a regional behavioral insights conference that started four years ago to emphasize applications of behavioral science in the global south. And we were fortunate to be invited to moderate a panel and a roundtable for the event with some of the region's most amazing experts. We also got to sit down with some of those experts for both informal conversations as well as some recorded interviews. And we wanted to share some of those recorded conversations with you because they have so much to offer. The messages we heard were sometimes part of the same story we hear from virtually every behavioral scientist, but there were plenty of times we were hearing things about the unique needs of the global South. And that's what we want to emphasize in this episode. One thing that we heard repeated among almost all the experts was that, like the beautiful city of Doha under constant construction, there was still so much behavioral science to do. The field is so new and there is so much to learn. It's not surprising that the experts that we met at BX Arabia repeated this story frequently. So let's begin with Fadi Maki, the founder of BX Arabia and the leader of B4 Development in Doha. Fadi shared his thoughts on what makes BX Arabia unique. So there's never enough. Of course, there's always, there's always uh, an opportunity to make an improvement, a measurable improvement. And actually, this is kind of the new mindset that we're trying to promote, which is getting people to move into an experimental mindset. Because really what works is not what we think works, it's what's tested to work. And therefore, getting to the first level of people being happy to accept that changes in behavior require a lot of experimentation. We don't know what works until we're testing it. And therefore, there is kind of this mindset that we worked on. And I think there's been a great improvement in the whole region in terms of keenness to uh, take up evidence-based policymaking, and of course, using behavioral science tools such as dissection of the challenge, such as designing challenge, designing nudges or behavioral intervention that counter some of those biases, and finally testing. This kind of curiosity, this experimental mindset, this tremendous passion to bring behavioral insights to creating policies is what Fadi addressed along with his expert guests over and over and over again. It was like a song loop to remind us that the path to good policy is through good design and good data. Because as Fadi says so frequently, we don't know what works best until we test it. And by the way, you're listening to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. 
And I'm Tim Houlihan. Uh, we like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. And as we mentioned for this episode, we're going to explore some of the things that Kurt and I learned while we were at BX Arabia in Doha, Qatar in November 2021. Before we get to those observations and insights that we gathered there, we would first like to express our sincere gratitude to the people who made it possible for us. Yes, we should start with Fadi Maki, the managing director of both Nudge Lebanon and B4 Development in Doha. And we are also very pleased to express our gratitude to the Supreme Committee in Qatar who supported our participation in the event. We also want to express our gratitude to some of Fadi's colleagues who are both local experts and behavioral science nerds. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were the perfect people to ask things like, where should we go for dinner tonight? As well as, like, how should we frame this question to the Minister of Finance? <laughs> <laughs> Two very different types of questions, but absolutely, without the incredible people at B4 Development and Nudge Lebanon, we would have been lost. Yeah. So let's call special attention to Helena Klausnieser, Nabil Sela, Andriana Musaram, and Rasha Nema for their round-the-clock support, expert insights, late-night behavioral insights discussions while sipping tea in the market. I mean, we covered it all. They kept our unending list of logistical issues from turning into nightmares. They offered insider tips to our guests, and they never stopped being partners, great partners in the behavioral insights journey. So thank you to each of them. Yes, thank you. And we also made some wonderful new friends while we were there, but you'll hear about them in a minute or two. So Tim, where should we start? Well, Kurt, I was thinking that we might start with Faisal Nauru's comments on the growth of the discipline around the world. Now, Faisal is the executive director of Policy Innovation Unit in the Nigerian Economic Summit Group, and he's part of the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. He's been based in London for many years, but has spent most of the past 12 years working with African and Southeast Asian countries. Faisal has created, he's the guy who actually created the very first global chart of behavioral science policy agencies back in 2017. And since then, that number has doubled. So I think uh, in 2021, I think, first of all, we've seen the continual growth of behavioral insights institutions applying pub, implying behavioral insights in public policy. So I think when, when we first look at it, Back um, in 2017, it was around 200. Now it's around 400, mm. and it's still growing. Wow. The, the growth of behavioral agencies in the world is just amazing. But the growth in the global south, that, wow. I mean, that's amazing, Tim. It really is. I'm so glad that Faisal started this in 2017 so that we have a benchmark and it is fantastic to be able to look at the growth in the global south. Uh, here we are just, you know, five, four years later. Yeah. And things are still just continuing to look bigger and better all over the world. And since you and I are, you know, doing this for the purpose of expanding the community of uh, people who are interested in applying behavioral insights around the world, it's so rewarding to see that it's actually happening. Well, and it reflects back on us. We're, we're both members of Diversify, the this behavioral science, applied behavioral science network of agencies that include people from around the globe and the global south. And that seems so 
now because I don't know if it could have happened five years ago and we wouldn't have had this yeah. connection. And Faisal's work kind of helped in making sure that that did happen. So fantastic. And another interesting thing to note about Faisal's count was that it was focused on public policy agencies, right? That And this was a common theme at BX Arabia. This idea of integrating behavioral insights into public policy was then emphasized by Dr. Ahmed al-Zahrani. Now, he's the minister, deputy, of and chair of the G20, as well as the executive director of the Riyadh Behavioral Insights Center in the Ministry of Human Resource and Social Development in Saudi Arabia. Man, he's, he's just an amazing guy. And he told us about what he wants to achieve within the Ministry of Human Resource. First of all, I'm a strong believer of evidence-based policy and using the right evidence to make decisions. You know, decision-making is not always uh, easy, even in the personal level, even if you want to sometimes buy chocolate or milk, sometimes you get confused with a lot of uh, choices. So my goal is always to improve the quality of decision because our decision as a government uh, policymaker has an impact into the labor market, into the affairs, into the job seekers, into the employment, into the life of uh, people. So that's why it's very important and it's very crucial for us to use the right evidence and to build the right knowledge and expertise into the labor market of what works and what doesn't. The interesting piece, Tim, that I found from that is helping people make better decisions. This isn't about telling people what to do, but helping them make better decisions based on data, behavioral science insights, all of those factors. Yeah. And central to all of this, of course, is using behavioral finance and behavioral science to drive better behavioral policy. Yes. Like this whole idea of behavioral policy is a kind of a new way of thinking about how the government you know, uh, can be thinking about government, all kinds of institutions, actually. Right. The, the idea that ultimately we need to take into consideration our human nature and understand what is driving the behavior that we have. And so putting those behavioral guardrails in place for decision-making, for the idea of how we actually impact somebody who is doing something day in and day out, not just how they think, but how they actually behave. I love that part. And, well, and of course, all of this is based on good data, Yeah. right? I mean, the, the whole his whole thing is about having good data and good evidence. And, and he expanded on that when and when he talked about how it was pivotal in convincing the G20 to adopt a more global view of applied behavioral science into policymaking. So it took a lot of effort and discussion with the partners, with the countries, that we need to explore using that into the labor market. It led to the agreement of all countries and the ministers of employment and uh, labor agreed in 2020 in the declaration to set up a network of using behavioral insight within labor market. That initiative is led by Riyadh Behavioral Insight Center. So Saudi is chair, Canada is co-chair, and I'm privileged to lead that effort. I'm I was just totally inspired by his work, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I love that there are really bright people in very, very influential positions in the world, like in the G20, who are looking at their their influence through a behavioral lens. Right. And this idea that it's collaboration and that oh, it yeah. is really it's this key to work and that no one goes it alone. This idea, let's pull all of these G20 countries in and let's figure out how we can work on these yeah. um, 
and we'll get to this later, these wicked problems um, <laughs> collaboratively, right? And Abs- I wanted, absolutely. And, and I wanted to get back to something that Faisal said about the behavioral insights um, to solve real problems like with labor. Faisal used this new term that we want to share with our listeners because we expect to hear a lot more of this in the coming years. And that term is wicked problems. And as Faisal used it as a way to highlight the key differences between behavioral science efforts in weird countries like the U.S. and most of Europe and the global south. Let's listen. I think I think the first time I heard it was when uh, when I was with the OECD and we had a, a conference, the first conference in in Cape Town, and uh, and there we had um, the then premier of the Cape Town government really making a call to say that um, look, it's all well and good behavioural science being used to I don't know help people buy healthier foods, yeah. but where we are and where we're from we've got some real wicked problems and we've got some real problems and those kind of things are first world problems. And so now how can it be used to address some of these, 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 these big wicked problems, as it was termed, um, in other parts of the world was I think really where, where it started to come from or, or where, where certainly for myself, where I've kind of had that aha moment. So Tim, I think the important piece here is that the problems that they're facing in the global South have a fundamentally different feel to them, a different impact than what we are often facing here. Because the challenges that people are facing, that the the societies are facing in the global South have a significantly different feel and impact than what we're facing here. Yeah, that and that regionality is is just fine. Yeah, right. Like we don't have to get stuck on the idea that we're always looking for the most universal applications of behavioral science. Right. We can we can just focus on the regional applications, um, and and maybe even do a better job. I think that 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 might be part of the story. Yeah, I think this idea of of not giving up, of making sure that you're customizing behavioral science and the interventions that you're doing to the regional and you know societal differences that are there because again if we're going back to what we talked about earlier this idea that we're having behaviorally informed policy decisions this idea of changing what is actually happening on the ground we have to take into consideration all of these different pieces and all of these different aspects of this. And the idea that these are wicked problems, that these are problems about hunger and safety and different things, and not just about going to the gym one more time a week is really interesting to me. And I think it's one of the things that they're, they're, what I heard Faisal talk about too, is that they're, they don't give up. They're keeping, they're adapting, they're, they're learning, they're, they're building upon this. Uh, we heard a similar story from Saud al-Rakeyas, and he's the founder and senior behavioral strategist at the Behavior Change in Kuwait. I think, I think he continued to emphasize this story. Uh, yeah, so uh, around social issues, I just want to change the mindset that good intentions are not enough. Uh, so we really, uh, if we are working on social issues, we have to be very professional in the way uh, we work on them. I, lately, I had the privilege of working with the embed unit uh, and uh, at the World Bank, and that uh, got me into okay. We need to tackle the social issues in a very uh, 
processed, uh, professional manner, knowledge share, and really, because uh, these social issues, if you don't influence in the right way, they can go the wrong way. So the concepts of adaptability and mindset got very clear when we talked to Aditya Jagati. He's the leader of Busara Center uh, offices in India and how they have to adapt a great deal of concepts to fit into the very specific cultural and environmental issues that they're trying to address. So the first project that we did was to sort of increase the uptake of iron and folic acid uh, pills among lactating and pregnant women in rural India. And we thought about it and then we realized that, you know, I think that Kenya model of labs is not going to work because we can't really expect pregnant women to sort of come to our labs and, you know, play with us, right? Um, So that was a new way of thinking about the laboratories in which we just took her and rented a bus and we just gutted out one out of three seats. And then we then fitted the bus with equipments and we drove from one community to another and invited the women in. So I think that was like a big learning that how you really need to, it's not only about adaptation and contextualization of project insights, but it's also about the adaptation of the infrastructure, which nobody necessarily thinks about it a lot of time. Okay. (laughs) Context matters. A bus. I love it. A bus. This is great. If, If they can't come to you, you go to them. Context does matter, Tim. I just love it. Reduce friction. Can't, you know, build in something that is culturally appropriate. Just go in and just do it. And, right? I mean, Aditya is just like, let's just let's just solve this problem. I mean, the the idea that that we can solve this creatively, that that we don't have to fall back to what we've always done or what has always been done in the past. This idea that hey, let's just think about this with a different perspective. What is the root issue that we're trying to solve here and how are we going to do that look back at what is essential uh yeah, get that uh-huh. we remember our jeff madoff conversation and then we can go in and just solve that being creative and yeah we may not have the budgets that you know maybe some of the western people do but hey we are creative here in the global south and we can we can make that happen i loved it i loved it it, it isn't almost part of it like you don't need a big budget as long as you're creative and clever and thoughtful about it that you can get things done on, you know, on a shoestring. Yes, basically. but Aditya took our conversation about context a step beyond where we usually take it. You and I both love to say that context is king, but he yeah. asked a very simple question. What do we mean by that? I think finally, I also think that it's really important to counter a lot of buzzwords that are, you know, um, um, that, that, that are prevailing uh, these days, things about participatory research, things about localization, things about contextualization. And I feel like sometimes these words sound so big, but at the same time, the interpretation gets really lost. Um, Question of is going to the field and talking to a person and doing an interview, is that participatory research? I think a lot of us, you know, get really confounded and we're not really sure. But I think at Busara, we take these things very seriously and over the years, what we want to build uh, is to have a better understanding, not just within Busara, but spread it to you know other organizations in the field. Well, I was in a conference um, um, a couple of months back, and it was a heated discussion about you know how do we really um, use these insights, and I think 
I can't really count. I don't think there was anybody who didn't say the word and the phrase that contextualization or the context is key and context is king in all different forms, right, that it can take. But I think in during the process where I realized that there were very few people who were able to hold a conversation and had really good depth of an understanding about can we define context in a manner? It remains still a very abstract concept. And what happens when you have and you deal with an abstract concept is that you fall into the trap of misinterpretation. And I think that's more dangerous than not. Okay, Tim. So what is context? <laughs> I mean, is it is it the change of the color of paint in a room, room temperature? Is it the, oh, yeah. you know, is it being in a bus or in a hotel room? Uh, what, what, where, where, what does it matter? Well, I know. Well, and, and then I think about something like uh, Thaler and Bernardzi's Save More Tomorrow. Like that's had very positive effects with many corporations, with many different people in many different contexts. Yeah. Like they're all signing up for Save More Tomorrow in very different ways. The basic concept is the same, but the way that they're actually doing it within their company, within their HR system and all those kinds of things, that's got to be different. Yeah. And yet, the overall effect, it works. And, and this is the interesting thing. It goes back to John Barge, I think. It, this idea that we have a number of multitude, a number of multitude, a multitude, yeah. a number of, a, a great big deal of factors that come into play yeah. that impact our behavior. And many of them, we don't even realize this priming effect that we have. And so understanding that, yeah, the color of a room might change what we're doing. And also the society that we live in may be different than the society that somebody else lives in. And those social norms are going to have an impact on what we do. It could be not just the larger society, but the regional society, the city, all of those factors in it, <laughs> right, which, right. which seems overwhelming in some aspect of this that, oh my gosh, we have to customize everything to the the little nuances that are going on but to your point like the save more tomorrow works it just needs tweaking and so I, that's the piece that i really love yeah i also I reflect on diversify the, we've both worked on projects with the diversify team where we've uh, engaged partners from around the world to help with the regional and contextual things that when we talk when we have a project that is both in the us and india and in europe that we engage those partners to have those conversations to understand the context better. Well, because they've lived it. They have the lived experience yeah. of being in that culture, in that society, which as much as we can try to understand it being an outsider, and maybe the outside perspectives gives us a unique perspective, but the inside perspective is really the perspective that we're going to have to be trying to um, touch, that we're going to try to impact because those are the people in that living in that context that we're going to have to make our interventions for and put that policy in place for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of want to take up Aditya's challenge. What is context? <laughs> uh, right? I, 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 we, we can't oh unpack God. that right now, but I want to I want to go after that. Well, maybe we'll do a grooming session on it at some point. Okay. What do you think? Okay. All right. I think it's a good idea. 
let's also move on. Let's let, let's mention the fact that we talked to William Hassanain, who is a behavioral scientist and social impact advisor, and she's based in Yetta, Saudi Arabia. And William works with a variety of disciplines to highlight the very horizontal aspects of the power of behavioral science. She she works across contexts, if you will you know, for the sake of context. And she also spoke to the need for more behavioral scientists in the region. So uh, I have done some work with a particular nonprofit that works with disadvantaged youth. And we were working on lowering absenteeism and class dropouts. This was very special to me because these particular youth were attending classes that would help them with their careers and then ensure that they would get certain jobs. And the various trials that we ran included messengers, so previous disadvantaged youth who had benefited from a similar program, goal gradients, so uh, the Starbucks-like cards that everyone likes to use, uh, as well as social norming to make it seem like if you missed a class, you were actually missing out on the fun. Uh, And surprisingly, it gave us a 6% uptake. One of the key challenges is data. And I think that's something that's all across the world, but particularly in Saudi Arabia, uh, there's a lot of publicly available data, however, not always in the areas that I would like to do my research in. That's one. Uh, Another is having enough practitioners from the region. And things like BX Arabia are wonderful and all the other behavioral insights communities because we get to share knowledge and learnings. However, there are very few behavioral scientists in Saudi Arabia. I think we all know each other by name, to be honest with you. So I would really like to see more behavioral scientists in Saudi Arabia applying it to the region. I thought this was fascinating when we think about the impact that behavioral insights can have in the you know, Saudi Arabia and different pieces, but this idea that there's data available, but it isn't always the right data, that these insights um, may not be applying anything involving human behavior and just make sure that we have the right data with the right number of people with the right background and understanding in order to get that. And this idea that, wow, we need more people that have this knowledge and these learnings to be able to do that. We absolutely do. We need more, more of this behavioral science lens. I mean, in in short, is isn't that it? You know, and and I think it starts with with people who are curious and people who are willing to pay attention to the world. Yeah, to pay attention to what's going on around them. Right. Yeah, I think you just need to pay attention to the world around you, and then you can address some of these things with behavioral science insights. Yeah, you know, we have shared how behavioral insights can be used to solve this wide variety of problems, but it got very real and very specific when we talked to talk to uh, Nabil Saleh. He is the vice president of strategy at Nudge Lebanon, and we talked to him about a problem where drivers stopped their cars when they approached a particular stoplight. <laughs> the stoplight <laughs> issue was driving Nabil and Fadi mad, and it made a clever combination of Nabil's work as a mechanical engineer and his interest in behavioral science to come up with a solution. And let's hear what he said about that. So this was uh, actually one of the very first experiments that we did in in Lebanon, in Beirut. And uh, this is a street that has the same uh, problem over and over again. People uh, bypass the zebra crossing 
Um, and what they what, what they end up uh, with is a location where the traffic light is behind them. So when the light turns green, they cannot see and they cannot uh, know that they should be moving. And the window for the green light is rather small. It's only 12 to 13 seconds. So by the time they realize that the people behind them are honking because they want them to move and they actually move, um, the, the window is up and only one or two cars have made it uh, across. So this is something that we wanted to work with. And we did a number of iterations. And this is the test, learn, and adapt. Because the first one did not work. We tried a 2D hand, uh, which was pointing downwards. Um, what we saw is that cars were going and stopping where the, where the finger was uh, pointing. Uh, and what we want them to do is move earlier, stop earlier. So we designed a sort of a, a 3D hand uh, that was pointing um, before, right? So stop there. So this was the kind of prototype that we did and which I was assigned the, the task of, of, of putting up on, on the traffic light. Of course, after getting the municipalities of permission and approvals and all that. <laughs> so it was a big structure, a, a big metal structure. Now, in retrospect, it should not be the case because we want to do a randomized uh, control trial. So we were putting up the hand and removing it every uh, 15 minutes or so. So it required like three or four people to put, to put it up and three or four people to bring it down. <laughs> but it was indestructible. Give it a tornado, give it an earthquake, nothing would uh, destroy that sign. Very well engineered. So, Tim, the interesting piece here is that behavioral science, in my perspective of what I'm hearing from this, is that it's horizontal, that it can be applied in product design, marketing sales, human resources, and even in the infrastructure of how city streets <laughs> and city signs are developed. It is pretty amazing, actually. And uh, I think it's so interesting that this was such a problem. Yeah. In this, like that, they're like, we've got to, we've got to get drivers advancing as soon as the light turns green. Like that's a problem. That is a city problem. Just follow the law. Follow <laughs> the basics. Of when the light turns green, just go. And that. They solved this problem without asking the city to change the infrastructure, without without asking them to spend all kinds of dough to actually move the stoplight or change where the you know the the, the street the crosswalk was. So what's interesting though is this idea, this concept of applying this behavioral science lens to this, and this idea that a finger, that the way that the visual cue is designed impacts how people understand this, which what should be a very simple thing to understand. That is the wonderful power of behavioral science. And that yeah. is amazing to me, this idea that why hasn't this been thought of before? I mean, this isn't unique. I mean, designers are trying to get this stuff all the time, but it's, it's not until you start taking the human nature about how we see things and the way that we interpret the things that we see and thus the behavior that results from that, that you get to these solutions that are relatively simple solutions, but can have a massive impact. Uh, agreed. I, I'm wondering if we could consider a stoplight a wicked problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this isn't a wicked problem, but it's still, it's an important problem. And, and it's one of those aspects that when we think about the impact that uh, behavioral science can have across the globe, across this horizontal application. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That is the power that I think we're, t- we're touching on here and, and, and what was we talked about. Okay. Well, let's hear one more behavioral science uh, wicked problem mm-hmm. that we, we heard at, B- at uh, BX Arabia. And this was from uh, Ivo Vlaev. And he's a professor of behavioral science at the Warwick Business School in the UK. And Ivo is a familiar face at BX Arabia as he's spoken to recent regional issues in the, in the past years. But this year, we wanted to hear about what wicked problems he thinks needs attention. And he turned to obesity. He outlined a beautiful, comprehensive strategy for helping kids lose weight and to maintain healthy weight levels. Indeed, very wicked problem. We have tried to crack it for decades without much success. Because what we know uh, for obesity over the last uh, decades of research is that it, it seems to be kind of relatively easy to make people lose weight very quickly. But majority of these individuals regain this weight within very short periods of time. And we can make people lose weight using behavioral programs. We can make people lose weight using pharmacological treatments. You can make people lose weight using bariatric surgery. But the majority of such individuals tend to regain their weight in a short period of time. So what can we do about it? So we need a systemic process here, comprehensive strategy. And we already outlined uh, in a report a behavioral change pathway to dealing with issues such as obesity, which has three stages. One is prevention, uh, nudging healthy diet and physical exercise. The second stage is early detection, detecting individuals who are at risk of obesity or already gaining weight, and monitoring of the population. And the third stage is treatment and management of the illness, how to nudge and influence people to adhere to their treatment uh, when they start uh, weight loss or weight management uh, program funded by the government or privately. There is a plenty of evidence just coming out. There was a BMJ article published this, uh, this year, essentially systematic review with meta-analysis of the effectiveness of uh, weight management programs that are delivered to individuals. And also there is a very long follow-up measurement, more than 12 months. And uh, what we found is that weight loss support programs that are based on behavioral science do work. Up to five years, we observe actually effect of these programs. And actually, we have done something similar in Qatar. It was funded by Qatar National Research Fund, uh, a three-year program where we actually selected overweight children uh, who were from schools, from 14 schools across Doha area, up to 300 children, and we enrolled them in a two-stage intervention. One was two weeks intensive camp. We know that these intensive camps where you have health, lifestyle, education, exercise, um, restricting diet a bit during the day and giving specific type of that we know is healthy so the kids are learning what to eat. When we do these research camps, kids do lose weight. But then we need to follow up with a community intervention at school. So every week for three months, the kids were enrolled in these after-school clubs, where again, they're doing a lifestyle sessions, education, exercise, and various behavioral techniques are involved in these sessions, such as um, they're playing groups and compete with each other, they're, um, they're learning how to control their portion sizes, uh, and we gamified some of the interventions as well, so we make it more entertaining. And that went, uh, led to weight loss as well, additional weight loss. So... Obesity is a wicked problem. It leads to a number of health issues, a number of of elements that are detrimental to people's well-being. And this idea of starting with youth, this idea of getting them young and to do this intervention, as he talked about, that's pretty 
it's a pretty big initiative to undertake. And yeah, it's a wicked problem. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It is a, w- a wicked problem. I also like that when we've talked about the, the very horizontal nature of behavioral science, there's also an aspect of you can't just fix something. You can't solve obesity with one intervention. Yes. Right. We, there's a lot that we're, we're still learning about obesity in terms of uh, the, the DNA, the, the genetic aspects of it. Right. But but he actually developed a bunch of different issues, a bunch of different interventions that I thought was really cool. It wasn't just like a one-time fix. Right. Yeah. Starting with a two-week intensive camp, then community intervention at school, then after-school clubs, then gamification and competition. All of those combined. Any one of those can probably have a limited impact, but the combination of those right. together, as you said, it's a multifaceted approach uh, to a wicked problem. And that's, I think, one of the big pieces that I'm taking away from BX Arabia in general is that these wicked problems require wicked solutions that are multifaceted, that we can't just think, oh, we're going to go in and put this single initiative in and the world will be a better place because of it. No, it needs to have long-term thought through multitude of touch points and multitude of different facets that play into this. Well, I'll tell you, that is something I'm going to take away from this conversation. Wicked problems need wicked solutions. I love that. (laughs) I just love it. (laughs) All right. So let's end with the host and founder of BX Arabia, Fadi Maki, with his comments on how to use something like the World Cup in 2022, which is being hosted in Doha. If you haven't already heard that from us, we talked about that. They are doing amazing things around that. And, And let's start with there. And as a foundation for lots and lots of behavioral science tests and interventions. That is really cool. They're using the sporting event as a way to think about a larger scale change process across the region. And Fadi addressed one slice of this in a very big pie, sustainability. Another wicked problem, Tim. There it is. It's another wicked problem. I think so. And he said that since the World Cup presents a huge opportunity to test new ways of doing things, testing in large public gatherings would be key to understanding more about sustainability. Let's hear him. Let's take sustainability, for instance. There's so much to be done in terms of reducing the carbon footprint of this event, increasing environmental sustainability, changing behaviors of people, reducing food waste, reducing use of plastic. And there's so many things. So what we do is test one experiment at a time and create pilots for other NGOs and organizations to cruise with that. So we create the evidence and other organizations use that to scale it up. So that's that's very important to discuss at the beginning. So we work on initially pilot experiments, and if they're successful, they're put for scaling up. So at at the level of sustainability, we, as we approach the World Cup, we are focusing more on tournament related affairs. So inside the stadiums, the fan behaviors, the trends, how do we get people to recycle correctly? How do we get them to use the right bins? How do we educate them? How do you push them, nudge them to litter less when they're in the fan seats? So all of these are 
great potential. Pro pro all, all of these present great potential for improvement. But there's also this final mile, which is at the stadium, even for those who are aspirational recyclers, who want to do right, and helping them to do it right in the right way, just reminding them sometimes, and just making it easy for them to comply if they really want to do the right thing. All right, sustainability, testing on a large scale. Oh my gosh, Tim, what else? What, 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 oh, what can we say about this? How cool is it to have eight brand new stadiums, hundreds of thousands of fans, to become the basis for this monstrous mega study of behavioral science. Yeah. <laughs> you and, know, dozens and dozens of things can be tested. And sustainability is just one set of initiatives. This reminds me of uh, what Katie Milkman and... Uh, yeah, the Be Behavioral Change for Good group. Yeah, yeah, the Behavioral Change for Good, where they're doing these large-scale interventions, um, multitude of tests with large groups. It's just, you have this opportunity to apply some of these theoretical things in real world on-site yeah. aspects. It's fantastic. It's it, fantastic. It, it also made me wonder about what other things could be tested. Like what else would, if you've got hundreds of thousands of people in town for, you know, a couple of weeks worth of, worth of games at eight stadiums, you could also look at maybe fan rowdiness or, mm -hmm. you know, fan behaviors, you could look at what about player access to fans? Like, does that make a difference? You know, you know, what, what are the things that do make a difference or what about merchandising mm -hmm. Like, where, where the, the merchandise thing is set up and uh, you know, that this kind of signage and the way people are routed um, access to food and drink. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, there's thousands of, of, of ways. I'm, I'm, I doubt that alcohol would be served in Doha, but... <laughs> but, you know. but you're talking about, and, and these may not seem like wicked problems, but there are things that you can take and learn here that they can apply to larger things. Signage, the directions, making sure that people fully understand this is brand new stadiums they haven't been in before. So making sure that the, the crowd control that the flow movement of this different pieces, the training for workers at the stadium, all of these things yeah, could yeah. go into, uh, could inform stadium design in the future, could inform how uh, people just do things at these. And again, take this to larger piece, right? They're, they're working not just at the game level here, but at, as you said, people coming into the country, yeah. sustainability of what they're doing, but these ideas of what can we do with the youth around because this is going to be a big thing in the region. So we have vivid attention. And how can we parlay that attention with what's going on with these into better societal components and various different pieces, learning, education, um, you know, uh, uh, exercise, all of those factors come into this. It was really, I think it's a, it's a cool concept. It's a fantastic opportunity that they have. And I think Fadi is doing a great job of just thinking through a number of these things. So maybe even, maybe there's the possibility that this might address Weems desire to see more people and Faisal as well, to see more people practicing and being curious about behavioral science with the work that gets done through the, the 2022 world cup maybe some people will go, oh, that's really interesting when they start reading the reports about what was learned. They'll yeah. go, I want to do that. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that just be <laughs> fantastic if that led to that? And 
as much as Fadi is a curious problem solver or a clever persuader or an insightful leader, he's also a teacher and a philosopher. And so I want to end with Fadi's philosophical message to the world when it comes to applying behavioral insights. And I think this is really key to almost everything that we have talked about here and that the people that we've interviewed talked about. And we asked him what he would like people to take away from BX Arabia. And this is what he had to say. I would like to tell them this. Unlearn all the old habits that are anchored in intuition and embrace evidence-based policies and tools such as experimentation. Well, with that, we just want to say thanks for joining us for another episode of Behavioral Grooves. And if you liked what you hear, kindly share it with a friend or a colleague. And as always, we hope that this week you go out and find your groove. <laughs>